Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. What's Wagner's rule of life number four? <laughs> Nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm sorry, I understand I might be like a dog with a bone on this, but this is just fundamentally wrong. It is an insult, but let's tee this up. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 414-799-1620. I'm sorry, I think this is absolutely ridiculous. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Eric Bilstadt, I was in Las Vegas over the weekend. Yeah. Went um, first weekend of the NCAA tournament, and I went with my wife, Fran, and she's one, she has six sisters. She's one of six sisters. So we went with my sister-in-law, Ruthie, and her husband, Ken. They're fun to travel with. We went first weekend of the NCAA mm-hmm. tournament and things like that. Matter of fact, we saw Cher Friday night. We went to see the Cher show. How'd I she had, do? I she I will tell you this. Matter of fact, if you follow me on Twitter at Jeff Wagner six twenty, I have a picture of my lovely wife and I in in the audience at the share show. You can see the share thing in the background. Um, we're up on Twitter. Uh, she she will be seventy three on May nineteenth, and for seventy two plus, she puts on yeah. a pretty darn good show. Yeah, cool. this is. She, she, you know, she's touring stadiums. She's doing like arena shows, and this is her like residency. This was at the MGM Park, which right. is a smaller venue. It's about a three thousand seat uh, theater, and so it's a ninety minute show instead of a two hour show. So she drops a couple songs. Didn't do um, Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, which is one of my favorite. <laughs> but but to answer your question, I mean, it, it's it's the share you know. Lots of clips from her past, but lots of costume changes and lots of wigs and lots of bouncing back and forth on the stage and i i mean I, I didn't buy a tour shirt but let me just say that she put on a pretty darn good show it was right. extremely entertaining and you know i mean she's, she's going to be 73 so she's not doing the and she's not doing the in, incredible dance moves that maybe she might have done 20 years ago but she was still she still looks great and she's wearing a lot of the costumes you remember from the different music videos and i'm, I'm watching her walk back and forth on the stage you know with these big old high heels i'm thinking how does this woman not roll ankles and stuff so it was it, it was very good and we, we had a lot of fun at the share show and like i say there's a picture of fran and i if you want to see it twitter at jeff wagner 620 but but here's the bigger point remember all week we were talking about like betting for the ncaa and in particular my marquette golden eagles yes, right yes, okay yes. so i want to officially announce you can you can slap me on the head and, and just, you can hit the fool button because here, here's the deal my strategy for the first two days of the NCAA tournament that almost always works out is that you take the underdog. You take the points. Just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Just, just take the points. So we flew out. The flight was like at 5 in the morning. We got there at like 7 a.m. Vegas time on Thursday. Long lines, stand in line. So I bet the first five or six games, I just take the points. I, I don't even, not paying attention to who's playing. I just take the points. I win every one of those. So I bet $100 on each game, and the tickets paid about 190 So, I mean, every single game I won. So I'm up like $540, $550. Okay, then there's the Marquette game. Mm-hmm. Now, Marquette was an underdog, was, was, was the favorite. So my strategy is you bet the underdog, and then you're, you know, that, that's it. Yeah. But it's Marquette. You know, th- the, the line had come down to three points. It's Marquette. I can't bet against my team. Now, as we had talked about, a smart man just sits the damn thing out. O- okay, they do. But I'm ahead. 540 bucks. <laughs> I'm up 540 bucks. 
I took the whole thing, oh, all $540, rolled it over, and instead of following my strategy, which you take the underdog, I bet on Marquette. Oh, all 540 bucks. Now, the only good news is I was playing on house money. I mean, sure, I, I yeah, was ahead, yeah. but it was, I, I mean, I got just, I got whumped. <laughs> Oh, it wasn't what, even close. It, it, no, it, it wasn't even close for any of that. And I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, why did you do this? You you violated every rule of sports betting. You bet with your, your heart, heart, not no. your head. Because I, I, I actually thought Marquette was going to lose. I, I really did. But I'm like, okay, well, maybe they're going to come around and do this. <sighs> So that was so I, I, I supported my team. I put my money where my mouth was and just got whumped. So I, I hit the fool button on that one. But to answer your question, we had a very nice right, time. Good, and it was we, we had a very nice time. But it was that kind of that sort of I, I got off to that good start, but after that it kind of it sort of put a damper on where we went from there. But uh Marquette season ended ignominiously. I'm sorry for all the Wisconsin Badgers fans who they got whumped on that as well. All right, if you follow me on Twitter, number of different things that we're gonna be talking about today. I've tried to give you a head start on some of them. Um so check it out at Jeff Wagner six twenty. We are going to talk in about 20 minutes, about the Mueller investigation. And I understand that every talk show host in America is starting off this morning or this afternoon, whatever. They start off their shows with the Mueller investigation, which was obviously the the big development over the last couple days. I will give you my take on what this means, where we go from here, and what should happen next. But we're going to do that in about 20 minutes. We're going to do that right after the 1230 news. Before that, I want to talk about, as long as we're talking about Las Vegas and stars and and the approach of Hollywood celebrities, I want to talk about something else that happened over the weekend that I found to be extremely interesting. And again, I sent out a link to this story. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. Barbara Streisand. Now, Barbara Streisand is arguably one of the biggest stars of her generation. Just an incredibly talented performer. She's also just a huge lefty, and then that's okay. I mean, I think you, you go over and look her politics to recognize she is incredibly talented. But there was something that she did the other day that I think is very, very instructive on, on what you see from the Hollywood elite. Now, a couple weeks ago, HBO ran this series called Finding Neverland. We talked about that involving Michael Jackson. And what they did is they interviewed two now adult guys who said that when they were seven, eight, nine years old, they 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 had sex with Michael Jackson. He brought them. He was attracted to them. He found them. He brought their families to his Neverland ranch. The moms and dads let these kids sleep in his bed, and they talked in great detail about the sex that they had with Michael Jackson at the age of like six and seven and eight years old when he was in his 30s. Created this huge controversy, and the Michael Jackson estate says, no, 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 these are all lies. I watched watched the documentary. I believe the guys. I I mean, I I start off with the basic premise that a 35 or 36 or 37-year-old man wanting to crawl into bed with seven-year-old boys 
not related to them, maybe even related to them, but not related to them is is just a, not a normal sort of thing. I know some people still defend Michael Jackson. You will never, ever, ever convince me that you know he wasn't a pervert and a pedophile. That's just how I feel. But in any event, Barbara Streisand decides to wade in on this, and she gives an interview with the Daily Times of the Times of London, and, and here's. They ask her about Michael Jackson. She was close to Michael Jackson in his lifetime. And this is what she says. She's talking about the guys that have come forward and voiced their 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 complaints. She says, look, here's what about Michael Jackson. She said, his sexual needs were his sexual needs coming from whatever childhood he has or whatever DNA he has. Okay, let's just start there. His sexual needs are his sexual needs. All right, so you've got a 35-year-old guy who likes to have sex with six- and seven- and eight-year-old boys. Well, those are his sexual needs. Okay. Then she says, you can say molested, but those children, as you have heard, they say they were thrilled to be there. Okay. You know, they, you know, they, they now say they were molested, but they were, they were thrilled to be at the Jackson Neverland Ranch, and they were thrilled to be, you know, treated to all this stuff with this superstar, and they were thrilled to do all this stuff. Um, now they say they're molested, but they were thrilled by this. Then she goes on to say, they both married, and they both have children, so it didn't kill them. <laughs> okay. Now, I, I'm wondering— what, what that says to people who were victims of pedophiles or of sexual assault that, you know, as children, well, they're married and they both have children, so it, it didn't kill them. Um, she said that she believed the accounts of the two guys who said that he were abused. She said she felt sympathy for Michael Jackson and that he was very sweet, very childlike. And then she said, well, I, I blame, I guess, the parents who would allow their children to sleep with him, which, I mean, I think on that count, we can all definitely agree, you know, what's going on with the parents. I don't know. I never had kids myself, but I don't care who they are, who they are. If some international superstar says, hey, I'd like to take your seven-year-old son to bed, I'm going to say, well, no, I don't exactly think that that's going to happen. So I agree with her on that point. But as far as all the rest of the stuff, she's saying, well, you know, they're molested, but but they they enjoyed themselves. They wanted to be there and they enjoyed, you know, they, they had kids. So how bad could it be? So she says this. It comes out in this interview on Friday. And then there's a backlash to which Barbara Streisand says, well, I'm, 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 profoundly, I'm profoundly sorry that people interpreted my remarks um, as maybe endorsing pedophilia. All right, our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I actually have a link to these stories at Twitter, at, at Jeff Wagner 620 um, Barbara Streisand, after she gets this backlash for essentially endorsing what I think is predatory behavior and pedophilia, she says, well... Um, I'm, I'm really I'm I'm sorry if people you know misinterpreted what I was saying. I don't know. I think she said exactly what she meant. I am not buying her apology, and I think this is reflective of I think this the bubble that some of the Hollywood elite live in. The idea that well, Michael Jackson is incredibly talented, and he is this huge superstar, and the boys were thrilled to be with him. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 
any justification at all for what Barbara Streisand said, we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, 414-799-1620. It's good to be back. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I I thought these comments by Barbara Streisand about Michael Jackson were absolutely stunning. It shows how out of touch a lot of the Hollywood elite is when it comes to things. And, well, I mean, essentially, well, all right, maybe these boys were, were in fact, you know, abused. And maybe Michael Jackson had sex with them. I believe them. But was it really that big a deal? I mean, they were thrilled to be at his house. Hmm. Karma in Oconomowoc, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm just very angry about her comments. I I was um, sexually abused a number of times as a child, and I got married. I had children. It doesn't just go away, and it's not okay. Um, It affects your whole life, and I've worked very hard to get over this. And to say, well, that's his sexuality, well, he can have that sexuality, but leave these children alone. Well, well, right. I mean, his sexual needs are his sexual needs coming from whatever childhood he has. Well, what the heck does that mean? Okay, so so his sexual needs are he wants to have sex with seven-year-old boys, so that makes it okay because he's rich and famous? I mean, really? I can't believe that she would talk like that. Anybody. Well, she says, well, no, I'm I, I'm sorry. Now, I do agree with her. I mean, she does kind of bl- she also says, well, I blame the parents and I blame the parents, right. too. But that right. doesn't let Michael Jackson off the hook for what happened here. No, not at all. Not at all. Right. Now, thank you. I, I mean, and I, I it's just one of these things that you see. It is this again. It's this incredible double standard that you get from the Hollywood elite. Well, Michael Jackson's a superstar. Michael Jackson's different than other sorts of people. I mean, the boys were thrilled to be at, at his house, and the boys were thrilled to be, you know, under his son. Well, yeah, they were. That's what allowed the guy to be the predator. The fact that everybody loved Michael Jackson. The fact that um, you you got to be part of his universe. And if you watch that show, what you saw is he'd use that star power. He'd bring the parents there. The parents, I think, they all thought that he was going to turn their kids into the next Michael Jackson. He was going to take them under his wing. You know, and what ended up happening is, well, he'd use them for a while. Then he'd get tired of them. There'd be the new kid that came along. And and then he just, he'd just move on and he'd discard the kids one after another. But yes, that that's what the real insidious thing of this was. He used his celebrity to attract the parents and to attract the the kids. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, Here's Courtney. She writes, um, she was part of the Me Too movement, wasn't she? You know, what if it was a seven-year-old child actress actress molested by Harvey Weinstein? Um, If the girl moved on and got married, is the crime any less terrible? And the answer, of course, would be, you know, no, (laughs) It, it, it it wouldn't. Yeah. Number of people are saying, yeah, remember that she's she's part of the Me Too movement. Well, again, this is it. It's the hypocrisy of the Hollywood elite. Michael Jackson is one of us. And I, I'm sure that there's a lot of people who think what Barbara Streisand thought. They just they wouldn't go and give a lengthy interview where they talk about this entire thing. But it's this belief that there's like different standards that exist for the little people, the regular people, and for those of us who are Hollywood superstars. Dave and Racine. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Greetings, Jeff. Uh, I think this is just a case of devolving leftism. I mean, whereas you saw Governor Northam of uh, Virginia talking about post-birth abortion, uh, this is just a 
case of the left uh, supporting uh, mm-hmm. sex with children is an alternative sexual preference. Well, I mean, that right, well, let, let, under certain circumstances, that is sex with children if, if it's certain people that end up doing that. If it's Michael Jackson, well, it, it's, it's okay because it's Michael Jackson. If it's other people, you know, maybe it's a different sort of situation. Speaking of the Virginia governor, isn't it amazing how that whole blackface controversy has just gone away? I mean, remember a couple weeks ago, there were all these calls and people thought the Virginia governor was going to have to resign over the fact that he apparently, you know, appeared, you know, in the in the blackface thing that was as part of his yearbook. Well, now we've forgotten about that. The lieutenant governor who's been accused of sexual assault by multiple women. Remember, everybody thought that he was going to have to resign. And now, again, the whole thing has gone away. You do really have to wonder, and I don't want to make this too much about politics, but you do have to wonder if if a conservative had said what Barbara Streisand said about Michael Jackson, essentially that the boys were asking for it. That's that's the bottom line of what she's saying. Um, and, and Michael Jackson, he well, his needs are his needs. If that had been a conservative who said that, that person would be blacklisted in Hollywood, and there would be outrage, and this would be a lead story on Good Morning America and all the talking head shows. But because it's Barbara Streisand, you don't get that. If it had been a conservative that had been involved in the blackface scandal or was accused of sexual assault instead of Democrats in Virginia, you would have had, again, the same sort of story. It would have been this drumbeat, but now this is all faded. I mean, it's completely and totally faded into black, and it demonstrates the double standard. But to the bigger point, it also demonstrates the fundamental cluelessness that is out there. I mean, seriously, Michael Jackson, his needs are his needs coming from whatever childhood he has, and the boys are, are both married and they both have children, the guys that were molested, so it obviously didn't kill him? Really? Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. The big news over the weekend was the conclusion of the Robert Mueller investigation, what, 18 months, two years? It ends not with a bang, but a whimper. Robert Mueller essentially saying no no collusion and no basis to issue criminal charges on obstruction of justice. Now, that's not exonerating the president on obstruction of justice. It's simply saying there, there's no basis to, to bring criminal charges. So what does this mean? Where do we go from here? Should the report ever be made public? And now will we be willing to move on for the last two years of the Trump term? So where do we go from here? Stick around. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. All right. For the last two years, I tried to put on my prosecutor's hat, and I have been saying repeatedly that I did not believe that there was going to be any evidence found to base charges of a criminal conspiracy. Forget the word collusion. That's not really what they're looking at. That was the word that President Trump was using. It's was there a conspiracy, a criminal conspiracy between the president or members of his campaign? Did they conspire with the Russian government to try to impact the election. And I, I I understand that some people maybe saw smoke. I'm not sure I even saw smoke. There was no question that Russia tried to and did, in fact, meddle in the U.S. elections. And to me, that continues to be one of the big takeaways. Moving forward, 
what can we do to stop that from happening in the future? Now, I think that's a very, very fair question. But as far as the question of did Donald Trump, when he was candidate Trump, or did members of the campaign engage in a criminal conspiracy, I've never seen any compelling evidence suggesting that happened. And the Mueller report says no, no evidence of that, or at least no evidence to base criminal charges. So to that extent, the president is cleared. Now, that's not going to make some people happy, but the president is cleared of that. On the question of obstruction of justice, which is a different question, not did you commit an underlying crime, because the investigation says, no, there's, there's no evidence that there was this underlying crime of a conspiracy with the Russians. So then the question is, was there evidence of an attempt to obstruct justice? That is, pre- that is to, you know, delay, defer, prevent the investigation. And th- there's no recommendation on that other than they say there's no basis to issue criminal charges. So they don't reach a conclusion other to say there's not going to be any criminal charges that come out of this. Now, let me just kind of interpret what is going on here. First of all, Given the fact that there's no underlying criminal conspiracy, it's very, very tough to prove obstruction of justice for did you obstruct justice in an investigation where there was no underlying crime? That, that's a tough – that's something that's tough to prove. Secondly, as I have been saying repeatedly – People around the president, for example, like James Comey, the director of the FBI serves at the pleasure of the president, and the president can get rid of the FBI director you know, for any reason he, he wants or no reason at all. This happens routinely. New president comes in, they, U.S. attorneys, there's 94 U.S. attorneys across the country. They are appointed by the president. They, they almost all are, are fired or they're asked to resign because the president brings in their own people. I never saw how this was going to lead to obstruction of of justice. The president gets to do right or wrong what he wants to do. And if the president wants to fire the attorney general, the president has a right to fire the attorney general. If the president wants to fire the FBI director, the president has a right to fire the um, FBI director. I don't see that those acts as being obstruction of justice, regardless of what his motives are. Now, if Congress... If Congress believes this goes too far, well, they have the right to, you know, exercise impeachment. But to answer your question, the ultimate question, I am not surprised that the obstruction of justice investigation goes nowhere. The next question is, should the Mueller report be released? And President Trump is apparently out today saying, yes, it should. Here here would be my answer. My answer is no. I, I, I don't think the report in and of itself should be released. And I'm not saying this to protect President Trump or to bolster President Trump. A lot of the information in that is grand jury material. It is material that was obtained through the, the secret grand jury process. One of the things I learned when I went to work in the U.S. Attorney's Office was that the government speaks through the indictments that grand juries return. If you believe that somebody committed a crime and you're a prosecutor, well, you conduct the investigation and then you issue charges. If you don't have enough evidence to issue charges, well, what you do is you close the investigation. Um, the, The idea that here 
We're going to conduct investigations, and then we're just going to release all the information so anybody can decide what they're going to do with it. I've always thought that is fundamentally unfair. If there's evidence of a crime, you issue charges. Otherwise, you close the investigation. And that's what I think should happen in this particular case. Now, I understand that that's not going to be satisfactory to some people. I I get it. I understand that there's a lot of people that are disappointed about this. But it seems to me, given the fact that you've had this extensive investigation, now the question becomes, where, where do you go from here? And where should we go from here? No basis to issue criminal charges. Um, no criminal charges on obstruction, no basis for finding that there was any sort of underlying conspiracy with the Russian government. So the fundamental question to me is, where do we go from here? Do we drop it, or do we continue to pursue this? 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand that there's a lot of the anti-Trump crowd, which is not happy. They thought, oh, this is going to be, we're going to see, you know, recommendations for charges, and this is going to be the road to impeachment. That door, I think, is pretty much shut. So here is my question to you. Do you want to see us now move on? Or do you want to spend the next year trying to push for different things and different avenues? And do we need to bring William Barr in front of some congressional committee? And do we need to ask him all these questions? Do we need to continue to get to the bottom of this? Or is it time for the American people collectively to take a deep breath and move on? I will tell you why I think it is important to move on. First of all, we've spent a lot of a lot of energy over the last two years going down this particular route, which is now turned into a dead end. There's all sorts of reasons why some people believe President Trump shouldn't be reelected, all sorts of reasons why other people believe that he should be reelected. But at this point in time, I think it's time to move on. And I, I think all sides would be wise to move on. Republicans overplayed their hand when it came to the Bill Clinton impeachment thing over the the lying about Monica Lewinsky. It ended up turning Bill Clinton into a sympathetic figure, and after the impeachment thing, his numbers were higher than they probably ever were. I think we're kind of at that same point when it comes to Donald Trump. All right, there's all sorts of reasons that you can say Trump shouldn't be reelected, but I think people collectively are tired of the, the Russian conspiracy and I think everybody, including the mainstream media, needs to move on. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Where do you want to see this go? We discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We're back. The Mueller report comes out. Where do we go from here? Dan on the south side. Dan, you're first. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. What do you think? Well, Brendan, I, I disagree. I agree with you on one thing, a couple of things. I disagree with you on a couple of things. So here's my here's my question. I've got a couple of questions for you. All right, I do believe that it should be opened up. I know where you're coming from on the on stuff. But I think it should be opened up because they did it to the Clinton when they got when he got investigated. They did it to Nixon, so I think they should open it up. What do you think? I think if it's grand jury material, it shouldn't be disclosed because grand jury stuff is supposed to be secret. Um, but th- that that's my take. What about the bigger point? Where do we go from here? Do you want to do you want to see? Do you think people should continue to pursue this? Was there obstruction of justice or do you think it's time to move on? 
Well, here's my thing to you, okay? I've got, I got two questions for you. I think it should be done, yes, for one reason. We don't know what's all in it, so there. But, it, all right, you're asking me, should he be investigated? Why are we still going after the Clintons then? Well, answer me that one. Well, we're, uh, but Dan, we're, we're not... We're not still going after the Clintons on Monica Lewinsky. We're not still going after the Clintons on on Whitewater. And as far as I know, I don't think there's anybody going after the Clintons on Hillary Clinton's server. I mean, look, at at some point in time, I, I think, you know, we have to move on. I don't know if this was the witch hunt that President Trump, you know, was was claiming. But it's been a thorough investigation. And again, one of the things that's productive that came out of the Miller report is it confirms what I think a number of us have known was that Russia was trying to meddle in our elections, which to me is the bigger issue moving forward. We got to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But I think it's pretty clear that there's no evidence linking the president to that. And I don't want to use the word collusion. It's really a criminal conspiracy. And there's no evidence right now that there's a basis to bring obstruction of justice charges. Now, that's not to say that President Trump is completely off the hook. You've got the other investigations going on in the Southern District of New York, and they will run their various course. But as far as this, quite candidly, I think to continue to pursue this, well, it's sort of like the, the people that continued to, the birthers, the folks that continued to obsess over, you know, was Barack, where's Barack Obama's birth certificate? I know that there is going to be part of the MSNBC crowd that obsesses over, well, they're, they're, they're still, this is disappointing. We, we really still believe that he was in, involved in a conspiracy with the Russians. At some point in time, I think you need to move on. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Dan and Racine. Dan, good afternoon. Dan. Dan, Dan, Dan. Hello. Hi, Dan. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. You know, I, I, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat because I'm, I'm so tired of the political system. Just they're, they're just All they do is go after each other and nothing's getting done for me. Well, well right. They're spending, all, they're spending all this time doing all this stuff have they fixed our 70,000 pages of tax code right. and come up with a tax system that makes sense? Right, right. Or, or health care or you know, all, all the different types of stuff. So you're ready, you're ready one way or the other. You kind of say a pox on everybody's house. Let's move on. You know, I, I, I think they went after them. They didn't get them. I think if the, if the Democrats are smart, they'll play it cool and let him hang himself. I, because he's the type of guy that'll do that. I, you know, I'm not anti-Trump. There's some good stuff coming out of what he's doing. We just don't like the technique in which he does it. I'll, I'll agree with that. I know well, that, that doesn't make him wrong. Yeah, right. Well, thank, I mean, see, I see. I, I mean, I think here's where this this goes. I think for the people that dig in and say, okay, there, there's got to be more here. We've got to pursue this. We're going to be like. Like I say in the, that open, like a dog with a bone, we're just going to chew on this. Well, you, you run the risk historically. Again, that will appeal to a, a certain segment of the population. But Republicans overplayed their hand with the Clinton impeachment and Bill Clinton's numbers, you know, rebounded. I, I think you have the same thing because I think there's a lot of people that say, OK, like you just said, Dan, hey, we took a shot. You know, they, they wanted to investigate him. You had this lengthy investigation and it kind of petered out. It fizzled out. Lots of people, especially in the mainstream media, are disappointed with this, but it fizzled out. And now it's time to move on. And I think that's the case right now. Um Candidly, you continue doing this, and I think 
in the mind of a lot of people, you make Donald Trump a martyr. And that's where the backlash really could come. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Diane in Milwaukee. Diane, good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon. Um, My question is very simple. Since the Mueller investigation is completed, what is the bottom line? How much did this cost the American taxpayer? We'll never know. We'll never know no, the full no, cost. No, I think we should know. Yeah. I think for future reference, this is a very, very important question. Mm-hmm. But what and I'm saying, cost? no, I think that's a fair question. I, we'll, we'll just. My guess is we will never know the the full cost of it. You'll well, be able to find out what what, what mm-hmm. the salaries that were paid to the prosecutors mm-hmm. were and stuff, but you're never going to know. I think the the full. Well, cost. I think that's a problem. I think that that when it comes to what these investigations that are really just bitter after the Democrats lost, uh, you know, what does it cost us? For their bitterness to mm-hmm. come to an end. Yeah, no, I think that. I mean, thanks. I, I think that that's fair. I mean, we, but I, the reason, and I'm not disagreeing with you when you say you'd like to know the cost. We don't. We will never know. Let's let's go back a couple years, and if you want to talk about witch hunts, remember the investigation into that the district attorney in Milwaukee County was running into Scott Walker and all these different violations. You know, ultimately gets shot down in the state supreme court. With you had a special prosecutor, we're never going to know what that cost. And that those numbers, they, they they say, well, we can't even tally them up because yeah, we can figure out how much we paid a special prosecutor or something like that. But we, you know, we we had government lawyers that were working on. So we're just never going to know what it costs. So you know, we won't know how many tens of millions of dollars were probably spent in this. But at some point in time, you get to a point where you say, do you throw good money? after bad. A lot of Dan's today. Let's talk to Dan in New Berlin. Dan, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi, Jeff. How are you today? Real well, thank you. Where do we go from here? I know. I just uh, follow up on the last caller, though. Uh, Considering the debt exploding under Trump and and spending out of control, I just find it funny that people are concerned about money now all of a sudden spending. But anyway, um, it is interesting to me that uh, the, the same people uh, the media, a lot of uh, Republican radio and the Fox News and uh, even Donald Trump, they all said we couldn't trust Robert Mueller. Uh, it was a witch hunt. Uh, it was illegal. Uh, the president even said yesterday it was illegal. I'd like to know what you think is illegal about the investigation. But um, my point being is that all of a sudden the person, uh, Robert Mueller, who could not be trusted, whose character was impugned for two years, he files a report that is favorable to the president. And amazingly, everyone now who was saying he couldn't be trusted, they believe him. And the flip side is everybody who was saying, oh, Robert yeah. Mueller is going to bring him down. They're now saying, right. well, we got to investigate him because there has to be something up. We, that politicians can't be trusted. Both sides. I mean, I, I'm telling you, I'm dis- disillusioned with the entire the political system. So I, you have a good day. All right? Yeah, thanks. And again, I'll, I'll be clear. I, I I did not fault the Mueller investigation. I mean, I I was one of these guys that said, okay, let's let it run its course. Now, I did at various times say, I think you got to speed it up. I, I think this is one where it's not good for the country. And by the way, to that point, for I, I understand that we're we're real tribal nowadays and we're real divided. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, just think this through. Isn't it a good thing? that the President of the United States 
wasn't involved in a criminal conspiracy with a foreign government to get himself elected. I mean, at the end of the day, shouldn't we all be glad about that? I mean, isn't that a – the big takeaway is, again, you had the Russians that were messing around in our election system, and you got to figure out a way to deal with that moving forward. But shouldn't we as Americans – Regardless of whether you love Donald Trump or hate Donald Trump, shouldn't we all be happy that, well, okay, the president of the United States, whatever his flaws may be and whatever legal problems that he might have moving forward, but during the campaign, he wasn't engaged in a criminal conspiracy with a foreign government. Now, isn't that a good thing? We pick up the conversation right there. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner coming up in just a couple minutes. The latest controversy involving, wait for it, Chick-fil-A. Stick around. Dan in Elkhorn. Dan, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Dan. Dan, Dan, Dan. Okay, let's try Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, Jeff, I was on your screener. So far, all we've heard is a lot of blather about how Trump was exonerated. And it's all based on a four-page summary by a Trump appointee. What we need to do is to get a hold of that report of Mueller's and the supporting documents. Otherwise, this thing is going to become a national joke, like the Warren report. And you're going to, for for years afterward, you're going to have people writing conspiracy books. But uh, even if they release the full report, including all the secret grand jury testimony and things like that, do you think that's going to change the way anybody looks at this? I mean, seriously, oh. if, yeah. I mean, I guess that's my point. You you oh, can no. release this whole thing, and the MSNBC crowd's going to say, oh, this was just a whitewash, and the Fox News crowd is going to say, see, he's completely exonerated, it was a witch hunt. I, you know, do you think we're going to ever be able to get past this? Probably not. Okay. No, I thanks no, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. And again, I the the reason I, I say that I don't think the full quote unquote report will ever be released and I, I just understand that this is Donald Trump and people people feel very strongly about it one way or the other. But there are all sorts of legal safeguards. And it's why I started this segment by saying, I mean, I go back to when I was a federal prosecutor. When you issue, for example, grand jury jury subpoenas, when people testify in the grand jury, that is done under a promise of secrecy. That's what the law says. And when you issue criminal charges, Okay, that that's obviously a finding of a grand jury. If there's no criminal charges to be issued, well, then it's not like prosecutors go say, well, we didn't charge anybody, but here's what all the people said about Eric Bilstadt. That's just not how the system works. Now, it might be that there's stuff that's not grand jury, people they talk to, and in that particular case, maybe that gets disclosed. But the bottom line of this is I don't think you can release all the documents in the world, and it's not going to change anybody's mind. It's just not. I think it's way past time to move on. Coming up, we talk Chick-fil-A. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Eric Bilstadt, opening day is Thursday. Yeah. Always a big day, a lot of fun. Looking forward to that. Steve Scafidi and I will be in the dugout together from 9 until 12. Then uh, I have a half-hour show from the, our tailgater, and then uh, we've got the opening day coverage. Always mm-hmm. fun. All right, so last weekend I was in this mythical place of called Las Vegas where you can <laughs> wager on things. And um, Oh, you put I, some money down. I, I did. I did. Now, here's the here's the thing. They have the, the over-under. You can make a wager mm-hmm. on how many games you think the Brewers will win this year. Last year they won 96 games. 
This year, the the over-under line is 86.5. So if you think they're going to win 87 or more, you bet that. Yep. And um, I, I did. I took the over. So I will. I have I have a vested financial interest all year in seeing that they win at least 87 games. Now, so, the, the division has improved, you could argue. Oh, no, it, it has. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. And then they also had bets. The, um, the Brewers were the third choice to win the Central Division. They actually, the Las Vegas odds makers, had the Cubs first, the um, Cardinals second, and okay. the Brewers third. I bet on that. And then I also bet on the Brewers to win the National League pennant, and I, I think the odds were six to one on that. And okay. I bet on them to win the World Series. All now, right. <laughs> the, 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 but those were smaller bets, right, but those sure. were bigger odds. But the, so I'll be watching the year. Now, again, this it was kind of the way. This is I placed this bet after Marquette got waxed. Um, then, then I see that they're two. Two of their three star relievers are out. Jeremy Jeffress mm-hmm. is out, and it looks like Corey Knebel is going to yep. be out for the whole year. So. I'm not feeling as good about that bet as I was before, but I'm I'm hoping that the Brewers do something. Their bullpen, which was a strength, now seems to me to be a real problem with these injuries. But you know, well, there's a couple of free agents still floating around. Oh uh, well, yeah, Kimbrell. You yeah, know, will yeah. will will Mark Ottenazio open up the wallet and and sign the best reliever in baseball right now? Hmm. That would be that Something would make us that would make a splash. But yes, but uh, so this year when we talk about the Brewers, full disclosure. They're, you know, young Mr. Wagner also has has, <laughs> has some money on on this. I will be, but I I will be actually. I thought, I thought, I mean, do, do I think they're going to win ninety six games? That would be something. But I mean, they the odds makers really don't like them that much. I mean, they they drop. They think they're ten games worse, and I don't I don't necessarily see that. Could still win the division though by just winning eighty six, eighty seven games. That is could I guess possible, but but I. I I want them to do it all. Oh, I understand. <laughs> I, I want I, understand. I want them to win eighty seven <laughs> games. I want them to win the I want them to win the division. I want them to win the pennant. I want them to win the World Series. Then it'll be like like Chick fil A all around for people <laughs> here at the station or something. So I I had that I I have that rooting interest, but right. the bottom line is opening day is Thursday. Oh, why was I thinking of Chick fil A? All right. If you go to Fiserv Forum one of the most popular stands is the Chick-fil-A stand. As a matter of fact, it, it's, it's always one of the disappointments that if you go to a, a Bucks game or a Marquette game on, on Sunday, Chick-fil-A is not open because the philosophy of their owners is that Sunday is a day of rest and it's a time for people to be with their families. I understand that that might be antiquated, but when I was a kid, most stores were closed on Sundays. That was the whole idea. Sundays was, was not a day that things were open. Now, that has changed over the years. Now, why am I talking about Chick-fil-A? Well, Chick-fil-A, their owners, the, the ownership of the company is are, are people of faith, right? And they for example that's why that's why the that's why they close on on Sundays they are people of faith now a couple years ago the US Supreme Court decided that same sex marriage w- was permissible that the people who have you know that sexual orientation have an absolute right to marry just like men and women do so guys and guys girls and girls and guys and girls okay that's that that and that's fine that is the law at the same time, it doesn't change the fact that there are a number of religions, apart from you know whether the law allows something or not, there are a number of religions that teach, for example, 
premarital sex is wrong. Now, maybe you're rolling your eyes and you're thinking, oh, how antiquated is that? But, but that's what certain religions teach. There's also a number of religions that teach that marriage, the act of marriage, the religious rite of marriage, is intended to between, be between a man and a woman. Maybe you disagree with that. Maybe you agree with it. But it doesn't change the fact that there are certain religions, many religions, which teach that that marriage in the religious sense is between a man and a woman. Now, that's not saying the law doesn't say that same-sex people can be married. It's, it, it, it does. But nevertheless, if you are a person of certain faiths, that is what your religion teaches. All right. Well, Chick-fil-A has been controversial, I guess, for a number of years because the ownership of Chick-fil-A, again, they are religious, they are people of faith, and their religion teaches that marriage is between a male and a female. Now, there's no evidence that the folks who own Chick-fil-A have ever discriminated against people of, you know, same-sex orientation. There's no evidence that they don't serve, um, for example, same-sex couples. There's no evidence that they don't hire gay people. It's just the ownership. This is what their religion teaches, and this is what they believe. I bring this up because Chick-fil-A is back in the news. Uh, The San Antonio airport is getting ready to either open or revitalize a new wing. You know, you go to Mitchell Field, and there's there's really two wings that they use nowadays, the B wing, the B gates, and the C gates. And if you walk down the gates, you see there'll be a number of restaurants that, that you can eat at. Well, in San Antonio, they've either built a new gate or they've revised an old gate. And what they're doing is they took bids, and they accepted bids to put a number of restaurants in the gate. Um, some of the restaurants include a smoke shack barbecue, boss wood fired bagels and coffee, a sip brew bar, a Spurs store, this is San Antonio, and a couple other places. They also had preliminarily approved a Chick-fil-A stand in this airport. Well, that all changed last week when members of the Common Council said, we don't want Chick-fil-A in our public airport. Now, they've got 32 Chick-fil-A stores across San Antonio proper. So it's a, it's a big part of the San Antonio market. But they had also been approved to put, again, one of their stores in this airport. But the, the council, the common council that regulates the airport, because it's under the county's jurisdiction, by a six to four vote said, no, we don't want Chick-fil-A. Now, why don't they want Chick-fil-A? Well, all right, a couple weeks ago, there was one of these liberal websites that found a tax document filed by the Chick-fil-A Foundation, which is a a philanthropic arm of Chick-fil-A, and it listed various groups that Chick-fil-A made donations to. The one that caused all the attention was a donation in 2017 of $1.6 million. They gave $1.6 million. Now, who did they give this money to? Did they give it to the Ku Klux Klan? No, they didn't do that. Did they give it to the John Birch Society? No, they didn't do that. What did they do? They gave one, this would be the foundation, the Chick-fil-A Foundation, donated $1.6 million to something that you have perhaps heard of and maybe even participated in if you watch like college sports. They gave $1.6 million to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. 
the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Well, why would this be controversial? Well, it is because the Fellowship of Christian Athletes has what they have. They say it's a sexual purity policy for their employees. They say the Bible is clear in teaching on sexual sin, including sex outside of marriage, and homosexual acts. Neither heterosexual sex outside of marriage nor any homosexual act, I'm reading from the thing here, constitute an alternative lifestyle acceptable to God. Right? So that's their policy. And so Chick-fil-A has donated money to them. The San, the San Antonio Common Council has said, well, since you've given money to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, we think that is evidence of how you hate the the LBT um, G community, the LGBT community, and you know we think based on that you should not be allowed to sell your chicken in our airport. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To me, this is the new blacklist. The idea that well, how dare you? How dare you as a company or through a corporate arm, you know, give money to, I don't know, some group that might be politically incorrect by 2019 standards? 414-799-1620. Should Chick-fil-A not be allowed to be in a public airport? And how should Chick-fil-A respond to this? 414-799-1620. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have to tell you, this war on Chick-fil-A drives me absolutely crazy. This idea that you have a handful of politically correct people who are going to use their personal views and the personal views of the people who run Chick-fil-A to try to impact on public policy. 414-799-1620. Look, if you don't want to patronize Chick-fil-A because you don't like the fact that the owners of Chick-fil-A through their foundation made donations to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, for goodness sakes, okay, don't don't patronize them. That, that, that's fine. That's your individual decision. I know we make those calls all the time. If you don't want to go to Penzi Spices because Bill Penzi, the owner, is a flaming lefty who has disdain for conservatives, don't patronize the place, okay? But it doesn't mean that Penzi doesn't have his right to his opinions, and it doesn't mean that Chick-fil-A, um, through their foundation, shouldn't feel free to donate to groups that they want to donate. And again, we're talking about the fellowship of Christian athletes. We're not talking about some group labeled as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center or something like that. But you have a handful of these politically correct activist representatives in San Antonio who've decided, well, we just don't want Chick-fil-A here because we don't like the fact that, gee, the owners— happen to be of a certain religious belief that believes that marriage is between a man and a woman. Like I said, you can disagree with that. All right, there, there's no problem with it. You can disagree with that. But as lesson until you show me that Chick-fil-A is discriminating against its employees or discriminating against its customers, I think the ownership through their foundation has the right to do what they want. And for a government body to say you are not welcome here is, I think, appalling. And to me, if I were Chick-fil-A, 
I would be responding with a massive lawsuit against the Common Council for this type of content discrimination. Here's a text. I thought religion was a protected category under the discrimination laws. If Chick-fil-A was denied based solely on who they donate money to related to religion, it should be a lawsuit, to which I say, you know, amen, it should be. Another text. There's more important things, Jeff, in this world than to worry about, you know, um, who Chick-fil-A donates its money to. People have to stop being offended by just about everything. I mean, you know, really. Here's another one. Jeff, I mean, come on. Keep religion out of Chick-fil-A. Just sell the chicken. Next Chick-fil-A will get media questions on where they keep all their live chickens. Well, I mean, look, this is the bottom line of all this, that it's a business. If you had evidence that they were violating various laws and things like that, it's a different position. But there's no evidence of that. Chick-fil-A is a wonderful corporate citizen, and the owners tend to support causes that, by the way, aren't necessarily out of the mainstream. Um, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, last time I looked, that was not a non-mainstream organization. But this is the intolerance, and it is the discrimination, and it is the bigotry of the liberal elite. And we've seen examples of this that we've talked about on the program today a couple times. Look, Chick-fil-A, the question is, is it a good business or not? Do they, are, their par, are their hiring practices fair? Do they serve people appropriately? If they do and they otherwise meet the qualifications, they should not be discriminated against and prevented from um, opening up a location in a public airport based on the content of the beliefs, the religious beliefs of their ownership. To do otherwise is hateful. To do otherwise is the new blacklist. And if San Antonio and the Common Council continues to do this, I don't hope for big lawsuits, but in this particular case, I hope Chick-fil-A responds with the mother of all lawsuits um, against the Common Council for what I think is clearly unconstitutional discrimination based on religious overtones. I mean, can you imagine if you decided to say, okay, well, the store is owned by a group of Muslims. We're not going to we're not going to allow them to come in and open up. Well, everybody would be up in arms. But now you can do that because the ownership donates money to Christian causes. Give me a break. This is Jeff Wagner. back. Speaking of the hypocrisy, the, the people who would say, well, no, we, we would never discriminate against certain religious beliefs, but because you are Christians and you have certain beliefs that your religion teaches, you, you can't open a Chick-fil-A store in San Antonio's airport. You're seeing another version of that play out here. A week from tomorrow, there is a statewide election for a state Supreme Court seat. The, the conservative candidate is a guy named Brian Hagedorn. The liberal candidate is somebody named Lisa Neubauer. Neubauer is married to the former chairman of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. She's endorsed by numerous Democrats. Her daughter is a Democratic state representative. She is a very liberal judge. In contrast, Brian Hagedorn is the conservative choice for years I have listened to people complain about dark money, the influence of outside spending. And in most cases, it's been because, oh, you've got these shadowy conservative groups that are spending all this money to try to influence elections. All right. And and you've had people that have just denounced this, all the good government types. 
Well, in this particular race, Lisa Neubauer, by a, a margin of like 10 to 1, is getting hundreds of thousands of dollars of the so-called dark money from the groups like the Greater Wisconsin Committee that are being put in to run all these really ne- negative, slimy ads against Brian Hagedorn. I mean, as far as outside money is going, it's Hagedorn's being ex- outspent by hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. But interestingly, because the dark money from the sleazy outside group Groups is coming in for the leftist candidate. Isn't it interesting that there's no controversy about this at all? The hypocrisy is stunning. When we come back, do you really want to give up your health insurance? Stick around. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. As long as we're talking about opening day, it is a rite of passage for every Brewers fan as the boys of summer are back to defend their National League Central Division crown. Don't miss WTMJ's opening day live as we broadcast live from Miller Park on opening day this Thursday. I will be in the dugout with my colleague Steve Scafidi, here from the players, coaches, and Mr. Baseball himself, Bob Euchre, as the Brewers get set to kick off the 2019 championship season. It's opening day live. We start at 9 a.m. this Thursday, sponsored by Century Foods, Outdoor Living Unlimited and Tabak Law. All right, I, 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 let me just give you some thoughts from a recovering lawyer on this. Over the years, I have watched certain attorneys, both locally and nationally, who have generated they're, uh, an intense spotlight. They, they've, they've, in some respects, been these huge narcissists. They've called all this attention to themselves. And my experience has been, generally speaking, the ones who do that, who burn just incredibly bright, they almost always flame out sooner or later, almost always. It's just difficult to sustain that. They get themselves in trouble. Donald Trump, whatever you think of President Trump, it says a lot to me that he would surround himself with a sleazebag lawyer like Michael Cohen. Now, that's come back to haunt him because Cohen's been making all his statements and is apparently, you know, Cohen is going to prison and he's trying to take as many people with him as, as he possibly can. doesn't matter what you think of Michael Cohen. The truth of the matter is it says a lot about President Trump that he chose to surround himself with a guy like Michael Cohen because I would argue that well, what, what President Trump, when before he was president, the only reason you surround yourself with a guy like Cohen as one of your attorneys slash fixers is because you can't find a reputable attorney to do what you wanted Cohen to do. I have to tell you, if if I had been an attorney representing Trump and some of these things had come out and he said, Jeff, I want you to do this, I'd say, no, I can't do that. I don't think this is ethical or whatever. I'm not going to do it. And if that gets you fired, that gets you fired. But then you can always find somebody like a Michael Cohen to do that. So I have I have no sympathy for Michael Cohen. And I have, again, to the extent that this is now coming around and it's biting President Trump in a certain part of his anatomy, well, that's what you get. That's when, when you hire somebody like him and ask him to do what he apparently asked him to do. Well, you, you get what you deserve. One of the other people I lump into that same category is this Michael Avenetti. He is the angry, surly media attention seeker who represented Stormy Daniels. Remember at the beginning of the Stormy Daniels thing, Linda Clifford is her name. You know, he was the guy that was all over TV standing next to her talking about the lawsuits that she was going to file. He was the guy that was on the other side of, you know, the lawsuits about the payoffs that Stormy Daniels had gotten to for hush money and things like that. 
Well, Avenetti um, is another one of these characters who certainly exploited his 15 minutes of, of fame. And interestingly, yesterday, Avenetti had sent out a tweet. Here's what the tweet said. This is from like yesterday. Tweet said, um, tomorrow we will be holding a press conference to disclose a major high school college basketball scandal perpetrated by Nike that we have uncovered. This criminal conduct reaches the highest levels of Nike and involves some of the biggest names in college basketball. All right. That was the tweet yesterday. I think it is unlikely that that press conference will ever occur. Why? Because, well, here's the story. Celebrity lawyer Michael Avenetti has been arrested on charges related to an alleged $20 million extortion of Nike, federal authorities said today. Avenetti is also charged in a separate federal case out of Los Angeles, where he is accused of embezzling a client's money in order to pay his own expenses and debts. It gets better. Okay, so here's what they say. Avenetti, who had represented porn star Stormy Daniels in her lawsuit against President Trump and his former lawyer Michael Cohen, etc., etc. All right, the charges, apparently against Avenetti, here's what they say he did in New York. An FBI agent says that Avenetti had threatened to hold a press conference on the eve of Nike's quarterly earnings um, call announced to announce allegations of misconduct by employees at Nike. A criminal complaint filed against him today says he devised a scheme to extort Nike by means of an interstate communication by threatening to damage the company's reputation if the company did not agree to make multi-million dollar payments to him and a co-conspirator and for, further agree to pay an additional $1.5 million to a client of Avenetti's. The complaint says that last Wednesday, Avenetti and a cooperating witness spoke by phone with lawyers for Nike, during which Avenetti stated, with respect to the demands for payments of millions of dollars, that if those demands were not met, I'll go take $10 billion off your client's market cap. I'm not blanking around. So essentially, you give me all this money, or I'm going to make these allegations against you on the eve of your earnings call. I'm going to try to tank your stock. Hmm. Um... Apparently, there's not much basis for those threats, and the authorities believe that this is extortion. Okay, so he's got that going on in New York. In the Los Angeles case, Avenetti is accused of negotiating a $1.6 million settlement for a client in a civil case. All right, so you settle the case. But then giving the client a bogus settlement agreement with a false payment date of March 10th, 2018, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office. The office said Avenetti took the money, um, misappropriated, it means stole. Avenetti stole his client's settlement money and used it to pay expenses for his coffee business, um, as well as for his own expenses. All right, so the, the deal is, the deal is we've got this settlement. They're supposed to pay it out on March 10th of 2018. They actually pay it out earlier. He gets the money. The client thinks it's going to be paid out on March 10th, 2018, and he spends it for his own purposes. When the fake March 2018 deadline passed and the client asked, where's my $1.6 million? Fair question. Avenetti continued to conceal that the payment had already been received. In other words, he stole the money from his client. That is, in fact, a no-no. Bottom line of all this is, whether it's Michael Cohn or Michael Avenetti 
or any of these other characters, Stormy Daniels, that are all circling around the orbit of President Trump, you do kind of get the idea that they, they all just kind of flat out deserve each other, you know? This is Jeff Wagner. When we come back, are you ready to give up your health insurance? Stick around. More Jeff Wagner right after this. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This week's Home Improvement Showcase expert is Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Perfectly beautiful. Interesting story in the New York Times. And, and I, you got to think about this because one of the big things that we're going to be hearing about a lot over the next two years is Medicare for all. What we need to do is we need to abolish the present system for health insurance and and go to Medicare for all. And a big story in the New York Times about this and what it might mean. And I've got a link to it. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I've got a link to this. But 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 here's what and this is what Bernie Sanders is talking about. Now, keep in mind, in most countries, we don't they don't have completely socialized medicine they have government run health care but they also have a private insurance sector that you can still buy private private insurance to either supplement what you get from the government or alternatively you know there's some doctors that are just outside the system and so you know they're not part of the national health care thing they just you know you 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 go to them and you have you can still buy private insurance that's the way it works in most countries in the united states even with medicare we we don't have a, a medicare for all exclusive requirement I mean, think back, what are the numbers? Last time I I ran them, about 35% of people don't have Medicare. Instead, they have like Medicare Advantage or Medicare Plus or whatever, because Medicare doesn't cover everything. So maybe they've got a supplemental policy which um, covers things that Medicare doesn't, or maybe they've got the Medicare Plus thing where they're in their private insurance network. So yeah, it's they're eligible for Medicare, but it's the private version of of Medicare. That's about thirty percent. All right, right now in this country, and here are the numbers: we have about ten million people or so who get insurance through the Obamacare Affordable Care Act uh, markets. All right. That is a fraction of the people who are either in the Medicare system, government provided for Medicare, or the Medicare Plus thing. And it is a teeny fraction of the way most people get health insurance. 250 million people get their insurance through their employers, right? Bernie Sanders and some like him are making no secret of what they want to do. They want to abolish private health insurance. I mean, here's the first way the, US, the the New York Times story starts, and this is the New York Times story. At the heart of the Medicare for All proposals championed by Senator Bernie Sanders and many Democrats is a revolutionary idea. Abolish private health insurance. Proponents want to sweep away our complex profit-driven uh, health care system and start fresh with a single government-run insurer that would cover everyone. But Doing away with an entire industry would also be profoundly disruptive, you think? The private health insurance business employs at least half a million people, 
covers about 250 million Americans and generates roughly a trillion dollars in revenues. Its company stocks are a staple of the mutual funds that make up millions of Americans' retirement savings. Such a change would shake the entire health care system, which makes up a fifth of the United States economy, as hospitals, doctors, nursing homes, and pharmaceutical companies would have to adapt to a new set of rules. Most Americans would have a new insurer, the federal government, and many would find that health insurance stocks in their retirement portfolios much less valuable. And it, you know, goes on and on and on to talk about how you're going to have a half, if you do this, you're going to have a half a million people that are going to lose their jobs. The cost of a proposal like this would essentially be trillions and trillions of, of dollars. And as far as whether your care would get better or worse, well, nobody really knows the answer to that. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have to tell you, and I, I'm, I'm going to say this for as long as I have the opportunity to continue to do this show, of all the different wacky, scary concepts that are out there, Medicare for all tops the list. Do I understand that there are problems with the private insurance system? Absolutely. I I get it. I, I understand that. But I think by and large, the majority of people, the majority of those 250 million people that to get their insurance to their private employers are happy with the insurance that they get. Would you like it to be cheaper? Yes, you'd like it to be cheaper. Trust me, Medicare for All isn't going to make it cheaper. They're not. This idea of going to a government-run system, which would unemploy half a million people who work in the industry, create incredible uncertainty about the, you know who's going to provide care, and essentially disrupt a system which I think by and large works, for something that is completely and totally unknown, I think is scary in the extreme. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do we do you really want to completely and totally blow up the healthcare system? Now look, I I, I understand maybe you don't like your twenty five hundred dollar deductible. Maybe you'd like your prescription drugs to be less. I, I understand all that. But, of course, with Medicare for All, there's no guarantee of that. On top of that, for those of you who might be on Medicare, understand what this means. You would no longer be able to, under Bernie Sanders' plan and many other plans, they're getting away with all pri- doing away with all private health insurance. You, Even if you're on Medicare, you wouldn't be able to have there, – there wouldn't be a Blue Cross Blue Shield supplement – There wouldn't be a Medicare Advantage plan. You would just have the basic Medicare. I mean, do you really want that? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We're back to discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This is Jeff Wagner. Understand, the people who are pushing for Medicare for all, they want to eliminate the private insurance industry. That's half a million jobs that are going to just disappear. Understand that they want Medicare for all, no more private insurance. Almost no country in the free world does that. For example, in Great Britain, which has like nationalized health care, they still have an insurance system. People who don't want to participate can pay and they can have insurance so they can go to private doctors. The Bernie Sanders of the world don't want that. Vicki and Keel. Vicki, you're on WTMJ. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think that is a great 
idea. For one, you're introducing socialism mm-hmm. to America, and we don't not, we don't not need that. Well, it, all the countries, Venezuela, under socialism, they have their big agenda of their new Green Deal, right. which is part of that Medicare for mm-hmm. all. That's not going to work. On top of that, if people take the time and Google Agenda 21 and the New World Order. Well, right. It, it's. I mean, thanks. I mean, the, the whole idea is, and again, I, I'm going to be the first to tell you that I understand that we have issues that you have to deal with. The question of uh, of pre-existing illness. You know, somebody you know has had insurance for 25 years, loses their job. Should they be able to continue to get coverage because they have diabetes or cancer or whatever? Of course, we we all agree with that. But but this idea that we're going to eliminate the entire private insurance market, we're going to stop having 250 million people choose their doctors, choose their health plans through their private insurance carriers, that idea, we're going to just get rid of that under this sort of pie in in the sky thing that, okay, we're going to have the government take care of all this. And everybody acknowledges that, you know, it's it's going to cost trillions of dollars. I I mean, I guess I, I am concerned sometimes because, frankly, we, we have this herd mentality, and American voters can can tend to be stupid from time to time. And there is this appeal, oh, you know, everybody will be covered, we'll have universal health care, and then nobody thinks through what exactly that means. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, um, Renee in West Dallas. Hi, Renee. Hi, Jeff. Um, I am on Medicare, and for you liberals that think Medicare is so great, Heed my warning. Medicare doesn't cover a lot, and without a supplement or an advantage plan, you're going to be paying a lot of out of pocket. There's also this thing called a donut hole. When you reach a certain amount in your prescriptions during the year, then you mm-hmm. go on what is called a donut hole, where you are paying full price for your medications. And right now, at this particular time, it takes over $5,000 right. of paying for your medications to get out of the donut hole, which you never do. Right, because, right, you see, and, ev- and everybody sort of thinks, oh, this is, this is this wonderful thing. No, that's why you need the Medicare supplements, you need the Medicare Advantage plans, you, you need all this, and this idea that, oh, everything is going to be perfect. We're going to have universal health care, and everybody's going to have whatever they want, and you can eat all the apple pie you want, and you're never going to get fat, and you're never going to get diabetes. That, that's just not the way this real road works. And again, I understand that people get frustrated because, gee, I had a 25 $500 deductible, or you hear horror stories on an individual basis, and I'm sure that those are out there. But big picture, I think the system works reasonably well. And before you blow it up, you got to know what the costs are really going to be. California, of all places, wanted to go down this route, and they had to back off because they started saying, look, we can't afford to do something like this. You know, what's going to happen to doctors? What's going to happen to the insurance industry? You know, do you really trust Bernie Sanders to figure this out? I don't think so. If you want to see a big story on this, written in all places in the New York Times, again, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. We will be talking about this on multiple occasions over the course of the next year and a half because I think this is a big election issue. I understand that the left is just pushing this hard and hard and hard. Here, this will be perfect. It will be this liberal utopia. Everybody will get covered for everything. Well, all right, countries that have tried this, 
it hasn't worked without private insurance and without long waits. Do you really want that? Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, this morning, I had to go to the post office. I had to physically go to the post office. Here, here, here was the deal. Well, I guess I didn't have to, but I thought it was a good idea to physically go to the post office because I, I have a passport which expires. The passports are good for 10 years. And I happen to use, when I fly on planes, I I use my passport as identification when you're going through TSA and things like that. So I I use it a bunch. My passport is due to expire in January of next year, January in 2020. So I, I need to get one before then. But they have this interesting rule that even though your passport doesn't expire till January of 2020, if you're going to be traveling overseas, you, it, it's not good for six months before the expiration date. Well, early September, we're, we're doing our WTMJ listener river cruise from Amsterdam uh, down the Rhine River. So that's September. I need a new passport before for that. So I, I'd been kind of putting this off and got back from Las Vegas, and I don't have any more flights that are scheduled over the next month or two. I'm not planning to go anywhere. So I thought, okay, this is an ideal time to get all the passport documentation set. And what you do is you fill out a form in black ink. The instructions are very clear. If you don't do it in black ink, you do it in blue ink, it's going to be rejected. So I did it in black ink. I went, you have to get a current photograph and it has to be a certain size. So I went to Walgreens last week. I got a picture of myself that fits. You have to put four staples in and they have to be in exactly the right, right, not one, not two, not three, not four, and they have to be exactly where they do it. I, I bring this up because, well, I'll get to that story. But, yes, you, you have to be, it has to be black ink. It has to be four staples for your photograph. And then what you do is you put this together. You write out a check for $110. You have to put certain information on your check, including your date of birth. If you don't put your date of birth on there, it's going to be rejected. And then you have to make sure, obviously, you sign the things and fill out the form. So last night, we get back from Las Vegas, and I said, I'm, I'm just going to get this off. It's been it's been on my plate. I'm going to get it off the, the plate. So I fill out the form in black ink, put in the four staples, et cetera, et cetera. And I get it all together. You, you send your, your current passport in. You end up getting it back, but you, they, they mark it like it's, it's canceled. So you have to put all this together. And then the passport instructions say... Because you're you're sending in your passport and all, we recommend that you do this via a a tracking service so you make sure that you can keep track of it, which I guess makes sense to me. And I figure, okay, I'm I'm going to go to the the post office to take care of it. So post office I went to opens at 9 o'clock in the morning. And so I get there probably about 10 o'clock, 10 after 9. And I'm figuring, okay, it's early in the morning. It's not going to be too much of a problem with the line. It's it's a Monday. So I go in to, to do this. I, and, and by the way, let me let me say at the outset, the the lady behind the counter at the post office was was absolutely great. Matter of fact, I had everything in an envelope and she said, well, just just for kicks, let, let's open this up. I, I recommend you send this by priority mail and let's open it up. And she opened it up and we, we went through it. She said, you would be surprised how many people screw up one of these things. And she said, you she said, you got this all right. And I, I said, yeah, I figured that uh, as much, although. One of the things, I, I did make a mistake. The form, when I printed it out, I printed it double-side. And she said, well, it's not really supposed to be double-sided, but here, I'll make a copy of it. So, all right. But the, every other than that, 
the, the staples were in the right place. It was black ink. I had the $110 check. I had my date of birth written on there. Other than, you know, she had to make a second copy of the second page. We were all good to go. So, you know, we sent it off priority mail, and I have my receipt. Hopefully everything will be fine. So the, the, I want to be real clear here. What we are about to talk about has nothing to do with the service that I was provided at the post office. The lady was knowledgeable. She was helpful. She was polite. Uh, and I, I had a thoroughly positive experience with the woman behind the counter. All right, here, here is the issue that I want to discuss with you, though. And that was, when I go into the post office this morning, did I mention that I had a thoroughly positive experience with the woman behind the counter? Well, I, I did. But here was the problem. She was the only woman behind the counter. Nothing else open. I walk in, and again, I, I want to say... Eight to ten people in line waiting for for various, various things. And when I first walked in, there was nobody behind the counter because there was a guy who was, I I don't know, he he was picking up mail. I don't know if the mail had been held or whatever. So for the first four or five minutes, I'm standing there at the back of this line. There's a guy, there's one window, one window that is open, and there's nobody there. Now, the lady is, is going and tracking down this guy's mail. So for the first five minutes, there's, like, no action at all. And I'm watching, and this is a true story, I'm watching people walk in, and they kind of look around, and they see the line. There was a guy in front of me who had been waiting, he said, for 10 minutes, and nothing was happening, and he left. Um, two people walked in after me, looked at this line, and turned around and, and, and went away. Again, I'm not criticizing the one woman behind the counter who I think was doing a heck of a job. She was knowledgeable and all that type of stuff. But but there was only one person behind the counter, and you've got this line. Now, I understand a lot of stuff is self-service nowadays, and there's a lot of things you can do. You can go to the machine, and you can put your credit card in, and you can get stamps and things like that. But by and large, the people who were in this line were people who— um, it looked to me like the stuff they were doing really wasn't self-service type of stuff, or— or, or maybe it was, and I didn't know how to do it, so I don't think they. I didn't think it was unreasonable that they didn't. But there was only one window that was open at the post office, and I, at the end of the day, I was in and out. I was probably in and out in fifteen minutes, but I didn't get the idea that this line was moving. You know, and I didn't get the idea that there were an army of postal workers who were going to be coming out and staffing the these other the, these other windows. Now, I don't know about you, but in, in today's day and age, you know, it's all about customer service and it's all about customer convenience. And I, if there is, for example, a grocery store where consistently there's 10 checkout windows, but they only have like one line or two lines open and there's always long lines, I'm finding a different grocery store. And I guess I was thinking about, you know, all the problems that the post office has with regard to losing money. And there's all sorts of reasons why the Postal Service, you know, is struggling financially. You've got all the competition. You've got the requirements that they have to put in a bunch of they have to essentially prepay their employees um, retirement benefits, unlike, you know, most other outfits. But I, I walked into the post office. Again, I'm a fan of the Postal Service. I, I, I am. I think they do a really good job. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, if you're trying to get business, the suits at the Postal Service need to realize that the way you do this is not by 
eliminating people behind the counter. I have gone into this postal service office before over the years, and normally you got two or three people that are working behind the counter, guys or gals. When you eliminate you know, a couple of those positions and you only have one person there, you know, when it opens up and there's a big line, what you end up doing, at least in my opinion, is you turn off a lot of the potential customers who simply say, well, to heck with this. Our number is 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, this comes from the perspective of somebody who is a fan of the U.S. Postal Service and and who, who likes to patronize it and wants to see it succeed. But If you're going into the Postal Service and you've got these long lines and it's not the fault of the employees, I mean, don't you, shouldn't we expect that there be a degree of staffing? And if you want to encourage people to, again, use the Postal Service resources, don't you have to make it easy for the customers to do that? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I admit I was a little bit surprised this morning that my guess is this line is not going to get any better. (laughs) I'm thinking, okay, I'm here first thing in the morning, and there's only one lady. And before I again, I know this is the third time I've said this, this, I'm not criticizing the woman who's behind the counter who was incredibly helpful. But I mean, I felt a little bit guilty because, I mean, she took her time with me, and, and which was appropriate. She said, okay, well, let's open up this letter. Let's make sure that you've got it all right, which I appreciated her doing. I mean, it was a good level of customer service, but at the same time, I'm I'm also mindful of the fact that there's all these other people waiting in line who are probably looking at me going, what's that you-know-what doing up there? What are they doing opening the mail? How long is it going to take him? But she was giving me a degree of customer service, but everybody else is waiting. And I'm like, okay, shouldn't we have some other lines open here? All right, we're lining up the calls now. Back with them in just a minute. I think, I mean, I think this is something that the suits at the Postal Service really have to take into account. It's still, at the end of the day, is about customer service, isn't it? This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. This week's Home Improvement Showcase expert is Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Perfectly beautiful. Let's start with Deb in Greenfield. Deb, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. I almost laughed when I heard your subject because I literally two hours ago walked out of the Greenfield Post Office because of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, got in there. There's always a line there. One person working, six people in line, seven people in line, eight people in line. And someone had asked, is there anyone else working here? And she goes, well, she had to take her break. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in walks this lady who took her break, and she's been there a while, and I won't say her name. But, you know, we're all waiting, waiting, waiting. Finally, um, you know, the line started moving again. Some woman came in at the far end. There must have been 10 or 12 people now at the far end. They're talking to each other like they're old friends. The woman at the back of the line goes up to her, and she starts talking. She goes, oh, yeah, well, let's keep in touch. Let's keep in touch. <laughs> and then the woman who came out of line goes, well, I don't want to keep you. You've got, you've got a whole line of people. That woman behind the counter goes, who cares? My last day is on Friday anyway. <laughs> and all of us are going, there's like two or three of us that are going, we care. Yeah, yeah, right. We have we have these things called lives and we have places to go. So at the end of the day, you, you, you walked out, you gave up. I did. I walked. I absolutely walked out, went to the one um, on Oklahoma in West Dallas. And I said, well, who do I call to complain? 
And she goes, well, there's a 1-800-consumer complaint. I'm going, oh, so it'll never get to these people? Okay. Well, well, so, well I, I am good. I'm happy, Deb, that I can then give you the opportunity to complain to the audience. Oh, well, it, it, I think it. You know, thanks for the call. I mean, again, I. But I mean, here's the bottom line. It, it nowadays, with, with all the different things that you can do, and see, and th- this is the lesson that I think any retail operation finds. You know, and again, I understand the postal service isn't competing. Well, they're competing to an extent, I guess, with Amazon or things like that. But, but the, the bottom line is, it is all about customer service, and. and and you can't make people wait for long periods of time because they will find alternatives. That's just the, the reality that, that's out there. And I, I mean, I guess there were different choices. Again, I have no beef with the customer service that I received. And in my particular case, I've, I've got no beef at all with the, the postal worker other than the fact that responsible management would have had two or three more people there to make sure that this line ends up moving. All right, I've got a number of texts on this. Jeff, were you at the Pewaukee Post Office? Every time, no, I wasn't. Were you at the Pewaukee Post Office? Every time I go there, no matter what time of day, I run into the same situation you just talked about on the radio. I'm like you. I'm a big fan of the post office as well. Well, yeah, th- that's that that's it but at the same time you you've got to be able to service people and i think with the postal service and i'm talking about the suits the managers that make these staffing decisions if you want to continue to be open to the public and you want people to come in you have to offer reasonable degrees of service okay now i have a note assume this is from a postal employee says our staffing requirements require that for every window clerk there be 3 people in line hence 6 people to and six people, two window clerks, nine people, three window clerks. We have a buzzer at our office that, um, you know, we'll, so we'll bring people if we have to. Well, okay, that might be what the staffing requirements require. But I will say, in all honesty, during the 15 minutes that I was in this postal service, there were eight to ten people in line, a couple of people who bailed including a guy in front of me who bailed and other people who came in, took a look, and, and headed out, um, there was one person. <laughs> and for a while, she was gone because she was in the back, like, getting somebody's mail. There, there weren't two people. There weren't three people. There, there, was, there was one person. And it, it's, it, it's just, I guess my bottom line is it's not unacceptable it's just not acceptable that, that that kind of stuff happens. And again, I, I, it, it's not the workers, not complaining about the workers a, at all. You just got to make sure you have people there to service the needs. Gilbert in Kenosha. Gilbert, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, yeah. Um, when you have complaints like that, you really got to get a hold of the postmaster. The postmaster. Yep. My wife's a postmaster in Mundelein. Okay. And... She's really big on, if you have complaints, talk to the postmaster. They'll take care of it. I mean, like, for you, you know, maybe there was somebody on uh, vacation or someone called in, and the manager didn't fill in the spot. Right. Right. But you can see our you can see the point of the customer that you, you come there and there's this long line and there's one person who's working her butt off, but there, there should be three people that are there. Right, right. Okay. Well, so you're, what you're saying is... Don't don't hesitate to complain. It's the postmaster of whoever the, the location is. That's who you want to get their attention of. Correct. 
Okay, well, thanks, Nicole. Well, my advice would be then for people who work as postmasters at the various branches, you might from time to time want to come down from the office, look around to the exterior and see how many people are in line and how many people, you know, working working that that you you know have there bottom line is and maybe maybe i just caught it at a bad time but i caught it at a bad time no doubt about it this is jeff wagner wtmj welcome back to jeff wagner on wtmj It's a rite of passage for every Brewers fan as the boys of summer are back to defend their National League Central Division crown. Don't miss WTMJ's opening day live as we broadcast live from Miller Park on opening day. That is coming up in three days. It's this Thursday. Hear from players, coaches, and Mr. Baseball himself, the one and only Bob Eucher, as the Brewers get set to kick off the 2019 championship season. It's opening day live. It starts at 9 a.m. this Thursday. We're sponsored by Century Foods, Outdoor Living Unlimited, and Tayback Law. All right, a lot of stuff to talk about right before we end the program. Um, gee, I, I come back and I find a story about the automobile collision with a house the car ended up losing. And I'm thinking, why does that street sound familiar? And a lady who's got a beef because she couldn't find somebody to put in her car seat Is it a fair complaint? We're going to talk about all that in just a couple minutes. I'm Jeff Wagner coming up. Be careful what you wish for. This week's Home Improvement Showcase expert is Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Perfectly beautiful. Be careful what you wish for. After the November elections, Governor Walker lost, but was still the governor until early January when Tony Evers took over. Republicans control the Senate and the Assembly. And if you will recall, they met in an extraordinary session where they passed various pieces of legislation which inhibited the the power of the incoming attorney general and of the incoming governor. If you will recall, if you were listening to my program at the time, I argued against some of this legislation because I, I just it does not that I oppose the legislation per se. I just thought it was kind of bad policy that I mean, elections have consequences. And I thought it was kind of bad policy that you've got a new incoming governor for the outgoing governor to um, sign this legislation and for the lame duck session to do it. It never crossed my mind because I don't believe that this is the case that it was illegal to meet in this extraordinary session. My objection was, I, I just think it's it's bad for public policy. Lawmakers have been using these extraordinary sessions um, for at least, well, for almost 30 years. It goes, it goes back to 1980. And over that 30-year period, in these extraordinary sessions, they've passed all sorts of legislation, legislation on child sex predators, um, laws um, regarding prenatal substance abuse, the authority for the financing for the Milwaukee Bucks arena. Over 3,000 pages of laws have been passed in these extraordinary sessions. Now, most times it's not going to be controversial because there's not going to be a switch in the legislature. It's not like you have an outgoing Republican governor, an incoming Democrat. So, again, my objection was public policy. It wasn't legal. Um, because, again, this has been a procedure which has been used for, um, you know, over 30 years. I mean, going on 40 years, actually. Well, what happened is you had a couple liberal special interest groups that didn't like what they did, didn't like the fact that you had th- this legislation that was passed. So they went to court, 
found a liberal Dane County judge, and this is one of the reasons why a week from tomorrow it's so important for people to go out and vote for Judge Brian Hagedorn, who is the conservative choice. He's getting just clobbered as far as spending from these liberal special interest groups. But but it's important because you have these people that they file lawsuits in Dane County. The Dane County judges, which are elected by Dane County voters, are much more liberal than the rest of the state. The law, as I say frequently, is an art. It's not a science. The people get elected to the bench. They bring their own sort of biases and preconceptions to the way they view things. And that's why you have every time the legislature passes something and the left doesn't like it, they run to Dane County courts. They find judges which will toss it out. And ultimately, it goes to the Supreme Court. At least for the last several years, the Supreme Court has reined in the excesses of the very liberal Dane County judges. Well, anyhow, you have these special interest groups that challenge this practice because they don't like what happened in December. But by challenging this practice, what they are essentially doing is challenging the practice that has been used for, like I say, going back to 1980. They find a very liberal state court judge appointed by Jim Doyle, who's you know been involved in a couple other, what I would argue, incorrect decisions over the last several years. And on Friday, I was on vacation, I, I, I was just kind of scratching my head. On Friday, he strikes down um, the, the law, he strikes down some of the actions that the legislature took during this lame duck session, essentially taking the, I think, with all due respect to the judge, the bizarre bizarre approach that the legislature didn't have the authority to meet in this extraordinary session. Now, here's where I say be careful what you wish for, because if if this ruling is upheld, it's not just, and then what happens is, so the judge says, no, you don't have the authority to do this, so all these appointments that, that Governor Walker made and the legislature confirmed, uh, Tony Evers immediately comes in and says, you people don't have jobs, you're, you're gone. All right, if If what the judge ruled was correct, now I don't think he is. Again, I think this is, again, one of these sort of knee-jerk liberal rules that you get because it appeals to some of the folks in Dane County. But if this ruling is correct, that the legislature didn't have the authority to meet an extraordinary session, this, at least in my opinion, doesn't just apply to whatever appointments were, were made in December. It applies to every law that has been passed over the last 30 to 40 years. And if this ruling by this liberal Dane County judge, his name is Richard Neese, if, if, he's, if his ruling is upheld, mark my words, you are going to see challenges to thousands of laws which have been passed in exactly this same process. You're going to have people running into court saying, hey, We were convicted under this particular law. Well, the legislature didn't have the authority to do this because they did it in extraordinary session, you know, in 2006. Let me out of prison. Overturn this. Whatever. Now, I don't know how much chaos this has the potential to cause. But for people who might have been applauding, oh, this is a great way, you know, we can stick it to Governor Walker, oh, this is super, oh, this is great, we can stick it to those Republicans in the legislature, be careful what you wish for, because when these judges make these rulings, there is a precedential value. It doesn't just apply to the case before you. So I understand maybe a lot of people, Tony Evers, 
the attorney general. They're patting themselves on the back saying, okay, this is great. We can put our people in instead of being saddled with the people that Scott Walker wanted to have in. We can pat our ba- ourselves on the back. Isn't this great? The Dane County judge did this. If this ruling is, in fact, upheld, though, um, I don't know. We have opened the doors for people to challenge 30 or 40 years worth of laws. I don't know what the full scope of this could be. But from the perspective of the state attorney general, district attorneys, private attorneys, it has the potential to really have opened Pandora's box. So be careful what you wish for. Now, I don't know if this ruling is ultimately going to be upheld. My gut sense is it's not right. The judge is, is wrong, and this particular judge has been determined to be wrong by higher courts on multiple occasions in the past. But this is another indication of of what happens if ideologically the balance of power on the Supreme Court swings. And there's an election a week from tomorrow. All the conventional wisdom says the liberal, and uh, her name is Lisa Neubauer, associated with the Democrat Party, the conventional wisdom is she's spent a lot more money. She's got all these special interest groups that are funneling all this money in, and they're trying to label her opponent, Brian Hagedorn, as this religious extremist because, I don't know, he subscribes to certain religions and have certain teachings. Well, they're trying to say, oh, guy, this is dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. Conventional wisdom says Neubauer is going to win big. I don't know if that's the case at all. It's going to be a low turnout election. It depends if people recognize how important this race is and end up and getting out and, and voting for Hagedorn. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Like I say, all the experts say Lucy Neubauer, she's got all the special interest money. She's going to win in a walk. Don't know if that's going to happen. But I will tell you, if you are concerned about keeping particularly these the Dane County Circuit Court bench And this is where all the challenges get filed. If you're concerned about keeping them under control, what you need is you need a conservative, ideological state Supreme Court, and that comes with electing people like Brian Hagedorn. Will that happen? Don't know. But this this decision on Friday, which goes, at least potentially, goes well beyond as far as the initial ruling, yeah, who cares about, you know, in particular uh, appointees? But I care about what it means for all the other laws that have been passed over the last 35 years, a lot of laws that we're not going to want to see overturned. And um, I don't know. I don't want a single Dane County judge making that determination. So be careful what you wish for. This is Jeff Wagner. Well. I know what we're all going to be doing on Thursday night, September 5th. All right. Mark your calendars. Uh, This is, it's actually, it's the NFL's 100th season. And normally, you know, for years and years now, the NFL has opened up on a Thursday night and they've had a marquee game. Typically, that game is reserved for the, the Super Bowl champions. Normally that, so normally it would be, what, New England, right? How quickly we forget. Well, that's not going to be the case this year. Since it is the 100th anniversary season for the NFL, what they decided to do is they want to have the they want to have arguably the biggest rivalry in in sports and certainly the most played rivalry in football's history, the Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears. 
So even though the Packers were a sub-500 team last year, the Packers are part of opening night. So the Packers and the Bears are going to be opening. The Packers open on the road this year. They will meet at Soldier Field, 720 kickoff. That would be our time. Um, This is going to be the 198th meeting between the teams, including regular and postseason context. What that means is um, if they play two regular season and one playoff game, they will uh, end the 100th NFL season with 200 total matchups. The Packers own a 97-95 seven series lead. But the bottom line is... Packers, opening night, national TV. It's going to be a new-look Packers team, new coach. I suspect a lot of new players and hopefully a new result. So mark your calendars, September 5th. It is a Thursday night, Packers on national TV. And by the way, um, national TV or not, you can always do what you really should do when you watch the games, which is turn down the volume and turn up the radio and listen to um, Wayne and Larry here on WTMJ. All right, there, there's a couple stories I want to comment on. We've only got a couple minutes before I turn it over to Scott Warris, who's in for John Mercure. A couple stories that I, I continue to not understand. This the, the whole dispute, and one of them is the whole dispute between Miller Coors and, and Anheuser-Busch. Uh, you will recall that, that Bud Light, during the, the Super Bowl, unveil, unveiled a series of ads where they, they ripped Miller Coors for using corn syrup. You know, the big thing of corn syrup gets delivered to the castle, and the king says, okay, we, we've got to take this. And so they trek the wagon full giant full of corn syrup, and they, che- they take it to the Miller Light castle, and Miller Light says, no, we got ours. It must belong to Coors Light. So they check it and drop it off at the, the Coors Light castle. And, and the whole point is that um, Bud Light doesn't use corn syrup like Miller and Coors does. Now, th- this is, and I said this at the time, it, it's a really misleading ad because corn syrup is a bad thing, but the type of corn syrup that Miller uses, it just it starts in the fermentation process. It's not the high fructose corn syrup that gets all the attention. All it is, it's, it's like a trigger for the yeast. And, and Bud Light uses its own trigger which is is rice. So this is it, it is it's misleading to say that there's something wrong with this, but you know Bud Light's done it. The bigger point is I, I watch these ads and to me and I made this argument at the beginning, it's just completely and totally ineffective. I mean okay, are you not going to drink Miller Light or Coors Light? Because, all right, they, they use corn syrup to start the fermentation process. I mean, my experience is you drink stuff because you, you like the taste. Nobody's going to argue that beer is a health food generally. And I guess I just didn't see that how this was going to drive somebody to say, oh, gee, I've been drinking Miller Lite all my life, or I've been drinking Coors Light all my life, and now I'm going to go drink Bud Light because this is what they use. I, I thought it was kind of a waste of of effort, not something that would drive people to, uh, again, to the product. But this is really incensed the folks at Miller and Miller Coors who think it's really unfair and it's a cheap shot. Well, rather than just let this go, and by the way, Miller Coors has responded with some clever ads. They've got one that's running now that they just debuted during the NCAA basketball tournament where they make fun of a Bud Light ad, and then they show after after the the filming is over, all the Bud Light actors are choosing you know Miller Light to drink. But here's I mean the way the Business Journal reports this: Miller Coors has escalated the beer wars, filing a lawsuit against Anheuser Busch 
because the Bud Light ad campaign, they say it's false and misleading. The lawsuit, which was filed last Thursday in Madison, seeks to set the record straight and obtain monetary relief for damages for the corn syrup-related ads, which again began during the Super Bowl. Um, the lawsuit calls the ads... Um, which has been, you know, again, they were trying to push vehicle transparency. A classic example of corporate doublespeak purposely fails to inform consumers that there's no corn syrup in the Miller Lite and Coors Light that consumers drink, that the beers don't use high fructose corn syrup in the brewing process, and that Anheuser-Busch also uses corn syrup in the brewing process for several of its most popular products, but not Bud Light. So anyhow, they say these are misleading ads, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. If I were Miller and Coors, I would respond exactly as they have been responding. I'd respond with clever ads, not necessarily a lawsuit. But the bottom line of all this is, and and maybe I'm just wrong here, but I don't think anybody cares. To me, it was an ill-conceived ad campaign that Budweiser launched in the first place that wasn't going to get one person to stop drinking Miller Lite or Coors Light and come over to Bud Light. I just didn't think it was going to work from a consumer's perspective. By filing a lawsuit, what you do is you essentially give Budweiser all this extra publicity, and now the whole thing gets fleshed out in public, and it's a story day after day after day. So you know, Budweiser gets all this free sort of publicity on this, and, and my guess is at the end of the day, the lawsuit goes nowhere. But by filing this lawsuit, again, you give Budweiser attention. I think the better way to respond to it is, again, you've got a big advertising budget. Deal with this directly. Point out that the Bud Light people are lying to people. Point out that they're trying to be deceptive, all that type of stuff. Try to turn public opinion against them. But at the end of the day, I mean, give me fun beer ads. Give me the taste great, less filling type of stuff. You know, give me the Bud Light ad, the Bud Light night ads. Give me some fun stuff. Give me the horses. Give me the Clydesdales. Give me the, you know, the frogs. I want that type of stuff. You know, whether something has corn syrup or not, that's not going to move the needle. And candidly, as soon as these brewers both kind of grow up, I think it's going to be better. This is Jeff Wagner. That's it for me, Scott Warris, and for vacationing John McCure. Hello. As a former federal prosecutor, is there anything you would have done differently or disagree with anything that you see from what uh, not so uh, far. Bill Barr wrote in the four-page letter? No, not, not so far. I mean, there's going to be pressure on Bill Barr to try to release more information, and the problem is stuff obtained by through the grand jury process is, is secret. The law says you're not allowed to disclose that. And I think that's I think that's appropriate. I mean, I understand people have curiosities, but you know, if the government believes crimes have been committed, the government returns indictments. If you don't return indictments, well, you, otherwise it's just innuendo and hearsay and things like that and I I don't know, there's going to be a lot of pressure to release it, but I I hope they don't do it. <laughs> 